0: So, I'm here today with Carl henrik Knitsen, Professor of Political Science from the University of Oslo and Prio. My name is Magnus Bergler-Rasmussen, Associate Professor of the University of Southeastern Norway and Oslo University uh, College. And we're here to talk about two major pieces we have written. First, our book, Reforming to Survive, The Bolshevik Origins of Social Policies, which is out on Cambridge University Press soon. You can find a preprint online. And a recent paper you've written, Carl, together with John Gehring and Jonas Berge, compiling estimates from a host of different studies on the impact of democracy on a host of various outcomes, a so-called meta-study. Let's start with the paper, Carl. What did we learn that we didn't already know?
1: Thanks, Magnus, and thanks for the introduction. Um, It is a very good question because we're actually then, as as you said, we're looking into uh, previous studies. So from the last 20 years, article publications on studies looking into the effects of democracy on 30 different outcomes, from economic growth to infant mortality, education, social policies, the environment. And uh, we're trying to summarize what we can learn from this literature. I think the main takeaway, uh, even if there are uh, some studies showing that democracy has, uh, you could call it adverse uh, effects on other outcomes we care about, so for example, worsening the environment, the main uh, pattern in these studies is either that democracy in most studies tends to go together with uh, outcomes that we uh, think are, are good, so uh, less pollution, higher growth, or that there's no particular relationship, for example, with inflation. Uh, so no no effect in, of on infl- inflation. So the main takeaway is either that democracy has positive uh, uh, has b- other benefits on other things we care about mm-hmm. or that it doesn't really hurt at least these these other things that we care about. So that's the main mm-hmm. takeaway and and one uh, area where we don't find any super clear pattern is is actually social uh, policy. So that gives us a nice segue into our book uh, Magnus, <laughs> where we argue that, so it's, it's basically uh, the fear of elites uh, that's, that drives social policy development. And uh, Bolsh- the Bolshevik Revolution is in the title. So, how is it that this Bolshevik Revolution in the Soviet Union could, could actually influence social policy development in other countries?
0: Yeah, so in our book we start with the fact that there's this huge massive explosion of social benefits and labor standard regulations following the First World War. And we argue that this is is directly connected or indirectly connected to the Bolshevik revolution through the association of local labor organizations with uh, the Bolshevik regime in Russia. Mm because elites comes to see that here we have these local labor organizations they have this social ideology which is the same as the one in Russia or or similar and they're also joined in uh, the communist international, the Comintern, so that they are actually directed from Moscow to undermine the local local order and so elites therefore comes to believe that revolution is both credible and possible, even if so these local organizations might not actually be revolutionary, or truly revolutionary, but the elites come to believe that they are, and therefore they respond with repressive uh, responses, so with military and police, but also with massive inclusionary social policies aimed at achieving labor peace. Mm,
1: mm. No, it's a... It's, uh... I find that to be kind of a fascinating argument that I think we, you can relate to also in like everyday life. So if you are uh, artists, elites, right, and, and you don't really want these very costly social policies that would redistribute uh, wealth, but at the same time, you do it in order to avoid uh, something that you fear even more like a, a, a revolution. So it's a very simple argument in, in that sense. Um, but of course, we go on to test that on, on very different types of data. So both kind of cross-national studies looking into uh, which countries had representation in common turn. But then there's also a very lengthy uh, and detailed case study, Magnus, on on our own country, Norway, in the 1910s and 20s. And you disappeared uh, into the archives and stayed there for several <laughs> several weeks um, um, and worked more or less, uh, I would say, as a, as a historian. So so I'm I'm very curious to know uh, what lessons do you think uh, we political scientists can take from historians in in how we conduct. Uh, historical work what's the main main takeaway?
0: I think that's a really good question, Caroline. And it, it's all about reading history forwards. Historians they have a tendency to go back in time, look at the specific actors, gather gather what evidence we can about what the those actors believed and uh, what their preferences were at that point in place. While political scientists we tend to do the opposite. We tend to read history backwards in light of the future. We knew that there that there wasn't ever revolution, Therefore, uh, elites uh, back in uh, Norway in the 1920s didn't believe a revolution was was possible. But that's totally missing the point and that is where historians are quite a lot better than us political scientists in recognizing the uh how embedded local actors are in these specific contexts so that's one of the great strengths of uh of uh, of historians but then i we are finishing in about 20 seconds so uh thank you everyone for listening to this very short podcast is, this has been me uh my name is magnus bergler osmussen and i've been talking to karen the professor yes. uh, and both of us at the university of Oslo. also, also. okay Seven last seven seconds, I would say that I'm very happy that there was no any revolution in Norway.